0: Hello, this is Frank Valvey with Frank Presents. and It's my great pleasure today to introduce Kim Driscoll. Kim is a candidate on the Democratic uh, Party to be our next Lieutenant Governor. Welcome, Kim.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Frank. It's great to be in Franklin.
0: I I would also like to point out that Kim is the current mayor of Salem. But before we get there, Kim, where did you grow grow up?
1: You know, Frank, I'm actually a Navy brat, so I was born in Hawaii and lived all over both coasts. Um, I had a sister born in Newport, another sister born in Hawaii with me. I went to high school in Florida, and I came to Salem to go to college. So had a, had a like a typical military family, uh, had a lot of moving around when I was young. Oh,
0: do you, re- do you remember uh... When you were in Newport, was uh, your father or your mother in the Naval College?
1: My, my dad was in the Navy. He was not in the Naval College, but we were, You know, he was assigned to Newport. And we were in brand new Navy housing when we were there. They just had opened it, 1970. And uh, we went back a few years ago, and my mother said, "Wow, it looks a lot different. Like when you remember something when it's first there, right, and right. you know, all of a sudden the yard looks like a postage stamp. When you were a kid, you thought it was, you know, the size of Fenway." <laughs> uh-huh.
0: <laughs> so you moved around quite a bit then.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, it, I know what it feels like to be the new kid in town, and also, you know, to to be able to explore new places as well.
0: And. Uh, what high school did you go to in uh, Florida? Was it a military school?
1: No, I went to Tarpon Springs High School. Uh, Tarpon Springs is on the west coast, uh, close to Clearwater.
0: Uh huh, and. Take the normal courses, or
1: yeah, I was great. I was a student athlete, so played a lot of sports. Florida is a great place to grow up if you're someone who loves the outdoors. So played tons of hoop, uh, played softball, frisbee, golf. At the time, you know, it, it was a ve- very much a new thing uh-huh. people were getting into, but r- really enjoyed growing up at a climate where you could be outside and and really, you know, play a ton of things on the coast and uh, lots of lots of peers and tournaments and really active.
0: And. Uh, Were you very young in
1: Hawaii, or how old were you? I was born in Hawaii, and we left shortly thereafter. Like, I don't remember it. Um, My family went back there, and I was like, why did you ever leave? This place is amazing.
0: (laughs) It is great, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I would love to spend more time there, but it's a little far away right now.
0: I like music, and I have two music shows here on the radio. And one of the things about Hawaii is slack key guitar. Huh. It's a type of guitar music, uh, unique uh, to uh, really? Hawaii.
1: I always think of the ukulele, right? Because yeah. uh, you know, Don Ho and others would play that, and it feels like a Hawaii thing. But I haven't heard of that one. I'll have to check it out.
0: Oh, slacky guitar is absolutely okay. marvelous. Neat. Lead ka- ka- kalapana, okay. uh, uh, black sand. I don't know if you went to one of the uh beaches where the sand is totally black
1: absolutely we have some like the volcano rocks you know that had come down from the volcano dried mm-hmm. obviously mm-hmm. and that's a contributing factor i think in a lot of that, those beaches yeah
0: and if you go up to the uh uh on maui if you go up to the uh, mountain and watch the sunrise before the sunrise i've never seen the universe as beautiful and as yeah. lovely, yeah. Uh, it's it just just
1: amazing. It's a pretty special place. I mean, it, it's so beautiful; it makes you want to cry, like nature. You know that you can you can see all kinds of aspects of it uh, from the the bluest of oceans and these amazing cliffs. We were in Kauai the last time I was back, and just a you know a a type of geography that you don't see anywhere. Picturesque yeah. for sure.
0: So. What moved you to, I gather, you went to Salem State I did.
1: Go Vikings. Yeah, I went to Salem State. My dad actually had grown up in Lynn, so we were familiar with the area and had visited family there. And I I came to Salem to go to Salem State, fell in love with the city, fell in love with my husband, Nick, uh, who was also a Salem State alum and uh, a a second generation union bricklayer. And together, we've raised our three kids in a really welcoming and inclusive community.
0: Uh, I worked in Lynn on, on Brookline Street. Nissen Baking Company had a plant at at the time. Okay. uh, Lin Lin, the city of Sin. The only good thing about Lin is you have to go through Lynn to get to Nahant.
1: (laughs) You know, Lynn was the shoe capital. I have stories from my grandparents and my dad talking about the sidewalks being lined, you know, like shoulder to shoulder. And they would make the new shoe style in Italy. And like literally in a week later, you know, Lynn would be manufacturing it and working really hard to try and keep people to work. And my grandparents were Westliners. And uh, I remember my grandfather saying, "You can stop, stop the car, pick him up. He's a Westlander. He works at the GE." <laughs> and so it's a proud or, or the city Westland for sure. Westland
0: Creamery. Yeah,
1: Westland Creamery, and not not there anymore.
0: Marshmallow fluff.
1: Fluff, not too far, right? Not too far away, for sure. Yeah, Yep.
0: Yeah. Oh, great. So, after college, what did you do?
1: You know, I had the good fortune when I was at Salem State to get an internship in the planning department in in the city of Salem, and really got a thirst for local government. Uh, really worked in urban planning for a number of years. Uh, both in Salem and in Beverly, another community on the North Shore. But I went to law school with the idea of both using that local experience um, at the local level permitting land use and worked in private practice for a while uh, and then worked for the city of Chelsea. Had Had a really unique experience as Chelsea was coming out of receivership, a city that was really on its knees and proud to be part of a team that helped renew investment and accountability and engagement with residents. And so I've had an exciting um, I think local government career, married in with some private experience as well, private legal experience. Yeah.
0: And where did you go to law school?
1: I went to law school at Mass School of Law. Uh, it's in Andover. Uh, really grateful to have an experience there. I went at night, so I was working during the day in both Salem and then in Beverly and uh, just had a phenomenal on-the-ground experience, really focused on writing, how to make sure you're a good writer, how to uh, make sure when you graduate that you're not only capable of passing the bar, but really have a solid entry into the profession.
0: That's wonderful. Yeah. What was your first elected uh, position
1: you know, my first elected uh, position was in Salem. we had always lived in Salem. And while I was working in Chelsea, I uh, ran for city council. I represented Ward 5, which is South Salem, right by Salem State University, where my husband and I had purchased our first home, a two-family, right around the block from Salem State, and felt grateful to be able to kind of give back. I'd been on the planning board and active in local government, but this was my first local position, elected position.
0: To the uh, uh, city council. It is a city. Right? City,
1: yep, city council. city council. Yep, Ward 5.
0: Yeah. And your, your husband uh, does what?
1: So he went to school. He has his political science degree from Salem State. But he's a bricklayer in Local 3 in the union uh, based out of Boston uh-huh. and uh, loves it. Uh, has yeah. been, uh, his, his his you know, he learned the skill initially from his dad. Uh, and his family has a strong tradition in the trades and uh, gets up early every morning, goes to work, uh, really enjoys laying brick and block. I, we tease him that he's putting his political science degree to good use. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and your children?
1: We're, we're fortunate. We have three, um, three kids, two girls and a boy, who are now older. They were three, five, and nine when I first was elected to the office of mayor. And now they're, they're young adults, uh, one, one, two still in college. And uh, no, two graduates, I should say, one still in college. Yeah.
0: Well, Karen Spilker, you know, is the president of the Senate.
1: I do, yeah.
0: And you, you might remember this story when you were uh, the lieutenant governor. She was running for the state senate uh, here, and Frank was part of her town. Mm-hmm. So it was coming up to uh, election time, and Franklin was having a downtown uh, Halloween or street thing that they blocked off the sh- streets in okay. downtown Franklin, and people were in costume, right? And it was just a a great community event. Community okay. yeah. vendors were out. So somewhere there exist, and on this somewhere in this TV studio. <laughs> video of karen in a black witch's dress (laughs) (laughs) with a black witch's tall hat that points up with
1: i'm used to seeing a lot of people dressed up in costumes in salem so it won't be a surprise for me (laughs) that's funny that's
0: good and and she got you know she Got elected by quite a bit. Uh, well,
1: I think there are a lot of adults who really like to dress up. And I can, I can certainly bear witness to that in my community, where we've found a way to make Halloween last 31 days. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. Um, as, as a mayor of a, a city, right? Yep. What qualities do you think you bring to the lieutenant governor's office because of you being a mayor?
1: You know, one of the reasons I'm running for lieutenant governor is because of my experience at the local level. I really feel like it's the branch of government that most people rely on the most. You know, educating your kids, keeping your neighborhood safe, investing in those places you make memories, and trying to like really lead on economic prosperity in our communities. And I know, at least my experience, both in Chelsea as the deputy city manager there and in Salem as mayor that you really need to have a strong state partner to be successful. The sorts of investments you need to make, the sort of know-how that you wanna bring into your community, the technical assistance for pieces, having a champion in the state house that's working to impact the quality of lives in the places people live is really, really critical. And that's an experience I have the last 16 years that I think can be a real asset to our next governor. And it's also the branch of government that where like you have to get stuff done. I have to make decisions every day for people that I know that I'm going to see the next day you know, in Market Basket or on the youth soccer sidelines. And it makes you, um, it keeps you humble, right? It makes you more accountable, you're a better listener, and you have a sense of urgency to address challenges. I call it the get stuff done branch of government. Like, I, I don't get reelected five times unless you're, you're working in concert with community members to make the place you live better. And I, I think that's a really important lens to bring to state government, and I hope to be a strong partner to our next governor.
0: Well. As, as a mayor, as you said, you're dealing with the nuts and bolts of mm-hmm. the city. How are those nuts and bolts, the police or the fire or, or uh, you know the issues that you're dealing with on a city basis, yep. how are those gonna to translate to you when you're the lieutenant governor?
1: You know, I think as a mayor, you have to do a couple of things. You've gotta make sure you're delivering quality city services that people rely on. And you're also also looking to make sure you're improving upon those services. So we don't pick up trash the way we did 10 years ago. We don't solve crimes the way we did 10 years ago. One of the things I'm really proud of is a culture in local government and city hall where folks are interested in trying to get better. You build a strong team, you hire people who are capable and qualified and you get out of the way and let them do their work. And if you do it right, you're always gonna have that drive for continuous improvement, that curiosity and willingness to get better, sort of with an eye towards what you're delivering today Day for services, but um, also thinking about the future. Salem is nearly 400 years old. We're one of the oldest cities in the Commonwealth. We have a really rich history, but we didn't stand on our laurels and just said, well, we're gonna be good because we were good in, in you know, 1626 or in uh, during the Great Age of Sail." You have to be willing to revitalize and think about how to innovate. And I think that's a skill set that we could use in state government. It can sometimes feel like we have an inspiration gap for the sorts of services that people rely on. Look at what's happening with transportation. You know, our public transit systems, both in the T and frankly, as I get around the Commonwealth, outside of the greater Boston area, aren't necessarily meeting the needs of people in our communities. And that's like a critical service that people are relying on to get to work, to go to school, to go to medical appointments. The housing needs, like so severe. Salem used to be a community that was affordable, where you could pour coffee or pour beer for a living and put a roof over your head. And what we're finding now is that's really difficult. People who are working one, two, sometimes three jobs are paying significant amounts of their income just to keep a roof over their head. And that makes it really hard to think about paying for anything else, and also makes it hard to save money to buy a house or even think about that given you know the increase and in uptick we're seeing. How do we address the housing needs? How do we think about not only the needs of today, but you know doing it with an eye towards tomorrow? And I think that's the job of a mayor and it's an important skill set to, to bring to the office and to partner as we think about the challenges that the state has, many of which, we won't overcome unless there's action at the local level. We're not going to tackle housing without housing being built in communities. And I've got a lot of support among my colleagues. And I hope to be that bridge to champion the work and also to ensure that we're thinking about not how we do things one city at a time, but how we think about the ecosystem in Massachusetts so that everybody's doing okay. Well,
0: one of the positions you're going to have as a lieutenant governor is you're going to be the chair of the governor's council. One of the main things of the chair of the governor's council is to bring the governor's nomination for not only uh, judges in in courts, but judges in the workman's compensation Mm -hmm. and uh, family uh, court. Uh, It it is a wide-ranging. Now, you mentioned that you've appointed people as mayor. Mm -hmm. How, as a lieutenant governor, are you going to screen and find the best pa- candidates, not only for the, the judgeships, but to head up the MBTA, to to head up, uh, you know the the DPW or the environmental.
1: His Department. cabinet roles, right? Important yeah. appointments. What, what right? specific steps
0: yeah. are you going to yeah. go through to find right. who who really can do the job?
1: You know, I'm so glad you mentioned the Governor's Council because I always refer to it as the most important commission most people don't know about, especially in light of you know what we're seeing at the national level with the Supreme Court. More and more decisions are gonna be coming down to what's happening in state houses, in state legislatures, and frankly, what's happening even in local courts. And this this job as Lieutenant Governor chairs that Governor's Council, meant all of us elect a Governor's councilor from a different district, and then they come together to review, review judicial appointments, pardons, commutations, it's a really critical component to making sure we have a judicial system that works for everyone. Um, There is a judicial nominating committee that's existed for decades that kind of does the initial screening of these appointments. How to become a judge or a clerk of courts or any of those administrative functions that you mentioned, administrative justices and the like, is gonna be really, really critical. Making sure people understand what the process is to apply. And then it comes to the governor's council where you're reviewing qualifications. Like the final backstop, frankly, is the governor's council. You know, one of the things that I've done as mayor in terms of appointing people is opened up the process. shouldn't be a club that only people in the know know how to be a part of. So make sure we're wide-ranging and seeking, you know, broad experiences for people in these roles and making sure we're thinking about high quality and lived experiences. We wanna make sure our judicial appointments, and frankly, the other roles you mentioned, which don't go before the governor's council, whether it's a cabinet secretary or other you know, important positions within government that the administration appoints, that, um, that we're thinking about what's the profile of the commonwealth? How do we make sure that when we're appointing individuals, whether it's to the judiciary or other roles, That they're reflective of Um, what our commonwealth looks like and the sorts of experiences that we want to make sure are wide ranging.
0: But I'm not hearing the nuts and bolts. So you know, I'm not hearing. I'm not hearing specifically how you're going to review uh, 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 for a position. How you're going to have knowledge of who the candidate should be.
1: Well, I think if you open up the process, hopefully you're getting more than just the usual suspects applying. You're reviewing that in a way that makes sure it's transparent. We don't want the, to be doing that sort of work behind closed doors. And then when you're talking about who might be on the agenda, you know, uh, let's make sure those meetings are open and available welcoming comments in from others, really kicking the tires on nominees, and oftentimes seeking them out. Um, if If our judicial bench is not reflective of our community profile, how do we go out and really look and be more intentional about who we're bringing in to apply and who we're appointing to these roles? One of the things we do in my community is really track are, are folks represented in different neighborhoods? Are folks representing different lived experiences? Do they bring a perspective that we don't have around the table already so we can make sure when we're vetting projects, or in this case, vetting judges, that we're getting uh, you know, a, a good cross-section of people in these roles?
0: Well, you, you have emphasized perspective. Mm-hmm. does experience in uh, similar positions come in.
1: Well, you know, perspective and experience can be can go hand in hand. If you're somebody who was only on the prosecution side or prosecutor, that's your lived experience, that's going to be different than someone who might be defense counsel. It certainly is going to be different if you grew up in an urban environment or if you were in a suburban environment. And what's your own experience? you know what, what type of culture do you bring or were you raised in to help understand how when you're especially and think about a district court, role as one example a district judge role you know those are what we call the people's courts right these are definitely usually lower level uh, disputes and lower level criminal activity how are we working on programs and projects that are going to assist communities most of those folks are going to end up back in communities if they're uh, you know being penalized or charged with items we want to make sure we're not putting people in a role like that that don't understand the impact uh, in a community Both for the actions that they're taking and for the actions that they're not taking.
0: The governor's council during the coronavirus was televised. Uh, You could pick it up. Is that still the case?
1: It is the case right now, but I think we could actually do a better job with it. Um, Sometimes it's televised on a separate YouTube channel. I know in Salem, in my own community, obviously we all pivoted digital to virtual meetings. We were using Zoom as our model for all of our boards and commissions. And now that we're able to be back in person, our meetings are hybrid. What we saw when we went virtual, like a 350% increase in participation. You know, folks were attending a school committee meeting without having to be present to get a babysitter or, you know, to if you cared about one issue, you didn't have to sit through the whole meeting to get there. You could put on a load of laundry or put kids to bed and still be engaged in the meeting. And so, what a, you know, in some ways, uh, with all of the, the terrible atrocities tied to COVID, it really did show us the future and helped spark newer ways of communicating with individuals and engaging in government that are here to. Day. So all of our meetings are hybrid. I can't imagine why the governor's councilors, co- governors council meetings can't be uh, hybrid as well. That gives everyone the benefit of either being in person or you know being virtual, but still being able to participate.
0: Is there a department in the state that is funded directly by the state that you feel does not have sufficient personnel to carry out their job? or that is significantly behind in handling things on a current basis?
1: I'm sure there are several departments that are feeling underfunded and under-resourced. I'll pick one that comes to mind for me that I think was highlighted during COVID and that's DCR, the Department of Conservation and Recreation. Um, whether you're an urban community like Chelsea where there's a DCR pool or a suburban community out West where there are where forestries and campsites, you know that's an agency that saw a lot more use of these beautiful spaces we have in Massachusetts, state parks, state campgrounds, state beaches, state pools. And you know, they have some capital plans in place, but really being resourced in a way that celebrates our state parks and these wonderful resources uh, that we can really take pride in. Lots of hardworking people. I think there's some good plans that have been made, but they need to be invested in to really celebrate opportunities for our own residents, let alone ecotourism and, and other ways to bring people to enjoy these quality resources in our commonwealth. I think we can do a better job there, and I hope to be in a position to influence getting more funding, helping support uh, their personal Personnel needs and growing out opportunities for these spaces to be well utilized with programming and, and activities that bring people together.
0: Mentioning uh, tourism, uh, I'm an old guy. And when I travel on state highways 190, 290, 495, uh, 95, man, there are no restaurants. <laughs> uh, and, and uh, you know, I've been after my state rep ever since he got elected. Why aren't there sufficient restrooms? And the funding comes out of the Bureau of Tourism. Why in the world is funding for restrooms in the state of Massachusetts not coming out of the gas tax revenue or highway revenue? Why, Why aren't we funding an essential need for people traveling in Massachusetts? Maine, New Hampshire, other states, have many of them and beautiful ones.
1: Right, I'm so glad you raised this. As a mayor of a tourist community, like public restrooms are uh, the thing you spend a lot of time thinking about, right? And these are amenities that are really important, not just for tourists, although I think they are. It's a key part of that hospitality infrastructure. And whether you're an older adult or a young adult, as a, as a mom with kids, you know, when you gotta go, you gotta right, go. Right. And, you know, right. and we should have these places open and available. I think it ended up on the tourism, you know, line item or uh, under that budget because many of them um, were co-located with like visitor industry, you know, opportunities, rack cards, places where you could get some insights into what might be available in the region, convention and visitor bureaus, and you know, we certainly know that this is not only something that's critical for people who are traveling from, you know, to and from places, but also a great way to make an entree into a particular region. So I would hope that we would have those public amenities, not just for tourists, not just for older adults and younger families, but if you're gonna have a resource, let's actually make sure it's working and open and available in a way uh, that meets people's needs going forward, and uh, I, we are about to cut the ribbon on new public restrooms downtown in Salem, uh, you know, working on ways that we can ensure people have those very basic necessities that we all need, and as I said earlier, it's not just good for visitors, it's community members. You know, it's an age-friendly initiative, frankly, to be able to have places that that people can utilize when they need them.
0: (laughs) Picking uh, the same thing, but in a real different direction, why don't we have a new women's prison? And do you favor uh, 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 building and and paying for, not bonding, but Mm -hmm. paying for? We seem to have the money that we could actually not have to bond it, but we could actually pay for it.
1: I mean, there's definitely a $5 billion surplus right now in state government. And oftentimes, I think you know, folks who are who are serving time are forgotten, and those sorts of facilities are forgotten. And there's no doubt that we need to make investments, uh, particularly in the places that are housing women who are serving time. I, I'm hopeful that you know we can put in place some dignity and some respect moving forward for folks who are who are serving time, who are finding themselves, uh, you know, paying a penalty for something they may have undertaken, but also putting them in a position to come back into the community. You know, I know as mayor, most of the folks who spend time in jail are going to end back in our community. How do we think about anti-recidivism, you know, invest in people, Frankly, not prisons, new prisons, but if we do have lockup facilities, how do we make sure they're working for the people who are in there with dignity, and for the folks who are, you know, who are who are charged with overseeing these facilities as well? They spend a long a lot of time in there. If you're somebody working in a jail or a prison setting, um, so I'm I'm hopeful those are investments that we can make going forward.
0: Well, it's the oldest prison in the United States of America for women. Hmm. All right, it houses teenagers and women in the same prison now. I hope and believe they're probably separated, but it makes uh, no sense, and yet I understand women uh, are against building a a prison.
1: Well, I think what's what's going on is there certainly is Um, a desire to make sure that we're thinking more about investing in people than prisons. So, you know, diversion programs, workforce programs, substance use disorder programs, mental health, behavioral health services, those are often poverty, like these are often the factors that lead to people going into a prison setting. You know, can we work on the front end to avoid that from happening uh, with programs that meet people where they're at? Now, we know there are still, we we wanna make sure we're mindful of victims and when there are crimes committed, there may be, obviously, punishments that need to be doled out can you do it in a place that has dignity that protects both of workers and also looks out for people who are serving time you know i think those are investments we need to be committed to make doesn't necessarily mean we want to build a whole lot a whole lot more prisons but we do have some that need capital upgrades
0: during cor- coronavirus we seem to uh, put a lot of emphasis on helping small businesses i don't know who the restaurant lobby was, but they seem to do an outstanding job in crying poor mouth. Do we really want our significant money to go into restaurants and small businesses? I mean, where do you stand on capitalism? Do you believe in capitalism or not?
1: Yeah, I believe in capitalism, but when we have a pandemic, a worldwide pandemic that essentially shut down businesses, and frankly, oftentimes due to government order steeped in public health, there is an opportunity to help businesses rebound and recover that given the the dollars that were coming in, both from the federal government and allocated by the state, were really critical. Our small businesses are the lifeblood of our community. You know, the places where you go downtown, that celebrate vibrancy, and restaurants have taken on a really meaningful way where you celebrate milestones in your family or mourn losses in your family. And they're providing, I think, income for people every single day, hiring uh, you know, not only service staff and hospitality staff, your typical sort of frontline staff, but also graphic designers, you know, trades person trade skilled tradespeople. There's a whole array of services, you know, truck drivers delivering supplies. Somebody caught the fish that served on your plate and served to, to really benefit the local economy. And you know, for me, I think our small businesses really, really felt the pain during this pandemic and we wanna have a strong recovery. Investing in those small businesses are not only gonna help our communities continue that vitality, but also help get people working and back to work and recovering as strong as we can. But
0: to begin with, you need consumers. Yep. A business, I don't care if it's on the way out, particularly restaurants, I mean, a third of them or more just naturally fail. You need consumers to, to, are you just supporting, you're supporting something that is never going to help the economy. You're just giving them money.
1: Well, a lot of the relief was tied to them hiring people and keeping people on their payrolls. And I think that was important. Remember, this was not anybody's fault, right? It was our community versus the virus. All of a sudden, this pandemic happened. We couldn't gather, we couldn't have people in places. We closed their business. And if there's an opportunity to say, we're gonna help you during this time that you're closed, we're gonna make sure that you can keep that staff that you had on or continue to pay rent or other expenses that you might have, during a time frame, then, through no fault of your own, right, you were you were forced to close. It's one thing if you have a failing business; you don't make a good hamburger, right? And or somebody somebody else makes a better hamburger, and you're impacted. This wasn't the case. We had a circumstance that was, you know, beyond what uh, people would expect, uh, and a challenge for a local business to overcome.
0: You had the circumstances that musicians, mm-hmm. dancers, okay, you had a lot of jobs that people no longer could earn a living, and you ignored them. Well, there was also unemployment. They never never got direct help either from the federal government uh, or or from the state, except if they were covered by workman's compensation, and now we owe, what, $2.5 trillion to repay? Uh, work compensation.
1: I mean, I think the government was trying to do everything they could to push in and build supports for individuals as well as communities were. You know, I know our food pantry quadrupled in terms of the individuals that they were serving. Um, I know that there was unemployment that was obviously uh, bolstered during the pandemic to give people who were working who suddenly weren't able to work, you know, income that could come in. There was relief granted from mortgages and rental assistance. So there was a lot of dollars and resources devoted to trying to help people. Was it perfect? No, it wasn't but it really did come together with the idea of keeping people housed, keeping people fed, you know, putting us in the best position to recover strong. And it can't go on forever, you're right. And you still gotta make a good hamburger or, you know, be able to, you know, one of the things I missed the most during the pandemic was live music. We were talking a little bit about, uh, about uh, you know, the, the guitar playing in Hawaii earlier, but many of our creative economists, you know, creative economy artists were harmed by this pandemic from, you know, theaters and, oh, and music me. and there's some And I think there's some still pending, you know, the economic development bill that unfortunately didn't get adopted by the legislature had resources, uh, some of it federal, some of it state, tied to, you know, really having a strong recovery and supporting a lot of these industries that were harmed.
0: Let me ask this. When you come into office in January...
1: I like that karma. I like that.
0: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) When you come into office in January, right, are you going to be looking at economically facing inflation? Are you going to be concerned about the economy going to a, a negative side, toward a, uh, a recession recession? Yeah. Uh, and one of the things I think you need to think about is all the money, right, that the federal government, federal government borrowed mm-hmm. is going to be spent pretty near the end of 2023. Most mm-hmm. of that money. Yeah that they're pouring into the economy is gonna dry up. So what do you see the administration that you're gonna be part of looking for fighting inflation or looking to counteract a recession?
1: Yeah, you know, I think it's a little bit of both. I've managed a city during a recession uh, back in 2007 and 2008, and I remember how difficult that was, right? You had all the same needs, but you had a lot less resources. This is a little different, Frank, in that we're going to be heading into some choppy waters, like, no doubt about it. There's a coffee shop right around the corner from City Hall. They've actually turned me into a coffee snob. Their coffee's amazing. And I was in talking to the owner, grabbing a cup of coffee. I said, how's it going? You know, how are you feeling? He said, I feel really great about the number of customers we have. We're really seeing a strong economy. is back, people are here, you know, they're in, we're busy, he said, but Kim, every single thing I bought last month, everything, with the exception of the fire alarm fee, right, went up, you know, all of the products, you know, all of the paper products, all of the, the items, and I, I don't know how much I can charge for a cup of coffee, right, at some point, you know, I can only charge so much, and the, the point of that for me was, there are definitely challenges that we're going to have due to inflation, things costing more, and availability of you know of products. He came through COVID. They actually started, you know, their business during COVID. They made it through, hooray, and he's more uncertain about the future now because of the high cost of things that he needs to purchase to be successful in what he's doing. So we need to be mindful of that. We've got what I think are some choppy waters. We're already a high cost state with housing being so expensive, tack on food, utilities, and rising prices, and we're gonna be in for some choppy waters. But this time, we do have historic resources. How do we use that $5 billion surplus, not even including some of the federal resources, to inoculate ourselves from the worst of it, to not make it worse (laughs) from an inflationary perspective, but to try and help people on the ground in ways that allow our economy to keep ticking along, and honestly, to keep us competitive. Massachusetts right now is the third highest for rents and home prices. That is limiting our young adults' ability to stay in Massachusetts. That is limiting older adults' ability to stay in the communities where they grew up in. If we're not concerned about housing, the high cost of childcare, the fact that we have all these transportation woes that you can't get from left to right impacting the quality of life, we are gonna really miss a long-term opportunity in this commonwealth. We've gotta use those dollars, these one-time resources in particular, with a goal of longer term economic prosperity how are we going to be best serving ourselves with those investments and some of that for me is workforce and child care and thinking about investments we can make now that can you know be sustainable into the future
0: the economic principle of your coffee example mm. is that at some point the pleasure of having that cup of coffee is outweighed by the negative amount you have to spend yep and at that point Someone's going to decide it's not worth my spending for this cup of coffee. Uh, the the other uh, point that I was going to make. You mentioned you have a river that goes through.
1: Mm-hmm. We're right on the coast. Yeah. Right
0: on the coast. So you're familiar with the issue of rainwater runoff. mm mm-hmm. And the town of Franklin, Millis. Uh, other places have decided that they'll take that out of the budget, like they took sewer and water. Is sewer, your sewer and water a separate fee, exactly. not part of the budget?
1: correct. Of an enterprise account is what we call them locally, right? Okay,
0: yep. so there are items that you can take out of the budget, right? Yep. And you can charge as a fee. I mean, you could take the whole police department, fire department, out. Some
1: places actually do outline, like this is what your schools cost, this is what your police cost. You know, in Massachusetts, but we you don't could actually to do that. take
0: it out of the budget and charge it as a. You fee. could, yep. So the town of Franklin has done that. They've taken and calculated what the environmental cost is, and and without anyone being able to vote on it in the town of Franklin, have set it up as a fee, fine. But. Franklin has gone one step further, okay? And they have made that fee on all religious organizations, and they've made that fee on all nonprofits. Now, one of the biggest nonprofits in Franklin, okay, is Dean College. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the effect, you know, maybe there's a lot of people upset with Dean College because maybe they think Dean the College ought to have. Paid for some police cars or whatever, hmm. but the principle, do you agree with the principle that cities should move to charge people fee so they can spend and make room in their budget for other items? Yeah. But particularly, do you think uh, Salem and other cities should not exempt religious and non-profit organizations?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm so glad you raised this issue because I think local autonomy is at the heart and soul of a lot of what communities are trying to better understand. Where can I bring in revenues to help offset costs that I have in my community, unique characteristics that I might have? There's a few communities who have looked at things like real estate transfer taxes to support affordable housing, or in this case, we sometimes are referred to as low impact development fees or storm water discharge fees. You're contributing into a drainage system we need to we need to maintain that right as a city or as a community and it sounds like franklin has decided hey we're going to we're going to have a stormwater discharge fee uh, and treat it like a like an enterprise account so that you're going to pay based on the size of the footprint of the space that might be having some runoff because we have to may have to treat that as we send it into the harbor and there are a number of communities who have taken that approach not not a lot i wouldn't say there's a huge majority but more and more people are becoming attuned to it as they're worried about the sustainability you know, within their community and these costs are going up to treat you know, th- this runoff. Um, so I don't, I don't really have a big opposition to it, particularly if it's locally, something that people have really sunk their teeth into, done the research and like water and soar, A lot of times we pull that out of the real estate. We have an enterprise account for that because we want to account for the fact that we have nonprofits who aren't paying taxes. Salem, for instance, we have Salem State University. We have a hospital. We have uh, a number of institutions, the PBD Essex Museum and others. If we were paying for water and sewer just based on real estate taxes, they're not really contributing their, their fair share for what they're using. When you go to this user fee based system, right, now the hospital uses a lot of water, Salem State uses a lot of water, they're gonna be paying their fair share for that utility that we all rely on. And I, I, I'm, I don't know as much about the Franklin discussion, but I'm guessing they're thinking of it the same way, that if you've got storm water coming off your parking lot that's discharging into the system that we have to maintain, we're going to charge you for it, whether you're a nonprofit, whether you're, you know, a for-profit, whether you're Home Depot, you know, or uh, you know, a, a local, uh, a church. It sounds like
0: is Salem State directly part of the state of Massachusetts, or is it a nonprofit?
1: No, they are. It's a state university system. Yeah. So
0: Salem State, under this example, I mean, you can't a city can't tax or charge fees to state facilities, can they?
1: I can't charge them for real estate taxes because they're a state organization, and I can't charge um, private um, nonprofits like the PBD Essex Museum under the IRS code, they're exempt from real estate taxes. Uh, now, and by the way, I am a I'm a huge fan of having these institutions in our community. Like we punch out of our weight class because of them. Um, so uh, it's they they bring a lot of vitality into our community. Both you know the number of people that they bring, you know, eating, drinking, uh, participating on in local government in meaningful ways. Um, but they also have costs, right? Their are impacts when you have uh, these large institutions. So having a water and sewer rate that they're paying for doesn't seem to me to be, you know, unjust, given but, that they're using the system. But it does increase
0: the fee to the students to it, the attend.
1: It does, to some somebody's degree. gotta pay for it, no doubt yeah. about it. And that's where state government comes in. I'm a, pub, I'm a Salem State grad, I am a champion for our public higher ed institutions. I'm the only candidate statewide that's actually went to a mass public higher ed institutions. And when I went there, you could hustle all summer. Like I, I worked basketball camps, I painted houses and I was a very bad waitress and made enough money to actually pay my tuition and fees, you know, through that year. Nobody can do that anymore. And I have two student two, two kids who were students and graduated from public higher ed institutions in Massachusetts. How do we support, you know, the, our students, 75% of whom of the graduates from public higher ed, stay in Massachusetts? You know, these are our future teachers and nurses and business owners and entrepreneurs and we want to make sure we're supporting that next generation. Well, we should be making sure we're adequately funding public higher ed. And I also think if you're in a community, you can't expect Salem State's water to be free, right? There, there's a lot of showers in, in those dorms being used, and we have a system that we have to maintain. And so they can do their fair part, and the state can better support those institutions.
0: Kim Driscoll, a candidate for lieutenant governor, what is the question that I haven't asked you that you'd just love to talk about?
1: You know, I love to talk about um, the strength of the this race in terms of who could be the best partner for our next governor. Okay. Um, and in my estimation, being someone who's been on the ground, dealing with local issues like the ones we just mentioned, like I have to make sure I pass a budget, work with our employees, p- create a vision for our community, and lead towards longer-term economic prosperity. That's very much the work that we need to be doing at the state level, and I think I'm the, the best partner to work with a, a Governor Healy in this case, and uh, look forward to being able to connect with people both far and wide, going around the commonwealth. We've really got a a strong group of support, and I'm excited about using this skill set and this experience to help not only my hometown, but hometowns throughout Massachusetts.
0: Kim, if people want to reach you, how can they do that?
1: Well, you can email me at kim at org. You can also just log on to kimdriscoll.org. And there's all kinds of ways to either reach out to me or to get involved. It's fun being on a campaign. We think ours is fun in particular, whether it's canvassing, helping with phone calls, building support in your community, or just reaching out and sharing ideas. It's a really uh, meaningful way to connect with people.
0: For the people watching uh, and the people listening, what might do, do you know the website address? Can you repeat it?
1: Absolutely. It's kimdriscoll.org, O-R-G. Uh, pretty simple. We want to keep it simple to make sure people know how to get a hold of us.
0: And, uh, and that's your campaign site?
1: That's correct. Yep. Website's there. And my email is kim at kimdriscoll.org, for anybody who wants to reach out that way as well.
0: kim at kimdriscoll.org.
1: Perfect. You got is it. Is your email. That's my email. Yep.
0: Anything you'd like to say before we close the program?
1: Yeah, I just want to say thank you, Frank, one, for having me on, for having this robust conversation, and for anyone who's listening, would really appreciate your support. I'm excited about this race, this opportunity to really make Massachusetts move forward in a way that thinks about resiliency, that puts both the mayor's kind of mindset in the corner office, and works collectively to make communities better. When our cities and towns are thriving, our commonwealth is thriving. And that's one of the reasons I'm running and super excited to, to be able to put this experience to work for you.
0: And the election is on September sixth. September what now?
1: September 6th, the Tuesday after Labor Day is election day, but you can vote early the whole week before the last week of August. Folks are already requesting ballots and voting by mail as well. So vote by mail, vote early at your polling locations. You can reach out to your city or town clerk or do it the traditional way on September 6th.
0: And you can do that in Franklin at the Franklin uh, Fieldhouse uh, where the gymnasium is. Uh, I believe it's something like six to eight, uh, during election day uh they will be having early voting as you say i'm not sure are those hours normally the same as election day hours
1: they really differ it depends on what city and town clerks are doing you know some of them are are doing them in city halls at regular business hours others have extended hours in different places
0: and the secretary of state has already mailed out mm-hmm. applications for you to fill out if you would like uh uh the state of Massachusetts to send you a ballot.
1: Correct. You can uh, vote by mail. You never you have to leave your house. You can vote by mail.
0: You don't have to leave the house. Uh, but we would really like to ask people to kind of uh, watch programs like this, find out more about uh, wonderful candidates as uh, you are. And uh, I wish you all the best. Thanks, Frank. Thank you for coming on Thank the you. show. And I hope after uh, After September 6th, you come back.
1: I will. It would be my honor. You've got a great studio here, so I'm happy to be here. We do.
0: Thank you, Kim. Thanks. And thank you for watching and listening to Frank's Presents with Kim Driscoll, candidate for lieutenant governor.